Yo, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is episode 70 of the Archipreneur Now podcast. I am your host, Heath Armstrong, and I am kicking it. I am jiving. I am doing some crazy things, hoping to get you out of that mood that you may be stuck in. I want to see smiles. I want to hear smiles. I want all of you to be happy, to enjoy what you're doing. Look around. Look at how beautiful it is outside. Just think how lucky you are to be here today, how lucky we all are to even be alive. I mean, think about the bloodline that you you would have had to survive uh, for, for the chance to you to actually even be here today. I mean, from the beginning of time to now, think about how many successful mates, like couples, had to actually successfully reproduce without getting killed from any diseases before they reproduce, without some kind of genocide, without some kind of war, without some kind of reason that, that they would not be able to reproduce that exact line. Uh, if none of that happened, I mean, think about it. If your grandmother never met your grandfather, if their parents never met each other, if one of them died two weeks before they would have met somebody, I mean, think about how crazy that is. The fact that you are here, that you are alive, is so small, and that should be enough to make you so, so, so happy. I know it does me every single day. Every day is a bonus round. Slow down and enjoy something beautiful because that is what we are here for. Like I said before, 2015 is no stress for me. Uh, I taken. I learned this from Jacqueline Duplessis. You take one year and then you take a word and you match them together and you kind of follow that phrase. You stick to it. What's your real big goal for this year? What's the resolution? I want I want less stress. I don't want to worry about things. And so 2015 is less stress, uh, no stress 2015. Anything that comes my way, I'm going to take it as a challenge to figure out a way to complete it. And I'm going to do the best I can and enjoy every single moment of it. So I am pumped that you all are here with me today. What are the chances? It's crazy to think about the odds. But we are here, and I hope that I can bring some sort of value to you. My interview today is with our very first guest out of Brazil, and he is phenomenal. I mean, if you talk about an artist, he is an artist through and through. He has a brilliant mind. He has taken every single opportunity that has come his way to make himself something much greater than he could have been. And it's extremely fascinating to me. And so when we first started this conversation, I actually never even got to do my introduction because uh, he, he just went off on a tangent about art and, and you could tell the passion in his voice. And I didn't want to stop it because it's so fascinating so I'll let you go right into this interview. I apologize for not having the normal, uh, you know, DJ 80s style introduction on this, but but believe me, this guy is brilliant. If you want to listen to him talk, he, his resume is insane. I mean, he's been all over the place, done so many amazing things, and he's doing so many things for the better to improve the world in so many different ways. He, he's really into why phases are so important to artists, and he really breaks that down in this interview. He gets into curiosity and art, and then how to make art feel. You know, how, how do we make it feel? And this is this is such a, just a fascinating thing. So this is episode 70 with Enrique Bertolani from Brazil. And I really hope you all uh, seriously enjoy it because I did. And, and it's and there's a lot of good information here. So so listen up and uh, 
If you have any questions or anything like that, always find me on Twitter at HB underscore Armstrong or shoot me an email at create at artsynow.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. I'd love to get to know all of you. And before we start, I just want to read this one review from iTunes. I really appreciate everybody that takes a little second out of their day to leave me one of these on iTunes. Um, it really does mean a lot to me. And it, you have no idea how much this helps spread the word to other audience members and, and get people more inclined to look at their life, review their life, and then make this, the changes necessary to create the life that they love. That's why we are all here. That's why we are all doing this. So this comes to me from Brad Marshall. Very refreshing, a new voice with new ideas and the balls to tell it like it is. Heath inspires the artistic side we all possess while building up the voice and courage of that dreamer we all have inside. So thank you so much for that, Brad. Seriously, man, uh, I really appreciate it. I do not really think of myself as having the balls to tell it like it is, but I guess when you look at it from the inside out, I've just always been the type of person who really doesn't want to conform to something just because somebody else says. Uh, This is our world. We can build our own world. We can live in it. Don't let somebody else build a world for you to live in. Create it the way you want it to be, and it's 100% possible, and that's a huge reason why we do this show. So thanks once again, man. Thanks for the five stars. And everybody out there, um, if you want to get on there and help me out, I really do appreciate it. It it does mean the world to me. So I'm going to get right into this interview with Enrique Bertolani from Brazil. All the show notes, artsynow.com forward slash 70 and here go. Come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Come on, come on, everybody, let me hear that stickity stickity rickety dickity beat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, here we go now. to get a little bit funky out there? Who wants to get a little creative out there, huh? Yeah. Which one of you wants to get a little bit artsy now? Well, then get on with your bad selves. Yeah. It's again, again. It's what I'm up for is because of because when I wrote you, when I when we came in contact, I what should I talk about? I don't think I am like this great artist that can talk about something. But I figured the following: that because of my international experience, I did live. Li- uh, I did live. Uh, sorry, I did live in a few places, and every one of those places, I attempted to do something with art. I yeah. figured how different people thought about expression, and I've because of because I lived in the United States, in Egypt, and in Brazil. Of course, I lived in, in in Europe as well, but I never painted a mural. I only exhibited in Europe. So what I'm trying to get at is that people really think differently in these three places about art, and I believe from my experience that, for example, take the United States for example. I think they risk more. I think the Americans have this entrepreneurship, which is very ingrained in them. So they are more apt to evaluate something for, okay, it's difficult to say, for what it is rather than for what it can bring you. 
Yeah. So I've had a lot of great experiences in the United States with ex exhibiting art. And in fact, that's where I really became known because in my college years, I painted these murals on campus at Michigan State and people really were not used to somebody... No, they were used to graffiti artists and, and all the respect. It's, it's a great art form. And it's funny that you say that because tonight I actually have a, my, the first graffiti artist on the okay. show. Fantastic. Which is going to be different. What, what does the person do? Does the person work like airbrush style or more like symbol style? Yeah, I think it's airbrush, but he he's uh he's actually like came out of Europe in the eighties mm -hmm. and was like one of the first ones to ever do it. And mm -hmm. he's he's turned that into a gigantic I mean, he does a lot, you know, I see you do a lot of workshops and teaching. He does the same kind of stuff and he, he tries to bring money back to communities, which is pretty awesome. That is something that I see. I think that's something that I'm noticing as well. And this is way worse than in the United States because here in Brazil, I've noticed it's like, a, with, I don't know if there's like a trend, but it's bothering me, which is an artist not being enough altruistic or not thinking that this word can even be possible to utter. Like, for example, you just said your friend brings money back to the community. For this to happen, you have to really be faithful to your community you have to like people have to really trust you because all these personal relationships that you do when you paint murals when you are outside when you meet the uh, disadvantaged and the wealthy and you have to keep a straight line on on, on polite you have to be a real human being when you're dealing with with all these different people and not acting fake and exactly bringing uh, like fame to your community so this type of work usually is not paid I do not see like businessmen hiring artists to do like regular artwork. I see business people, I see projects happening that are very expensive, require modern scaffolding. When I say modern, I mean those, those lifts. And those are multi-thousand dollar projects because after all, I've done my scaffolding work and I know it costs that much. So from my experience, I believe that the American entrepreneur is does a very good job because they really risk. They give new talents a chance. And I was one of those people with 19. I lived in a very, I think it's backwater America, Michigan, which is the like Detroit, close to Detroit. Although Detroit is a big city, the capital is a very small place. And even though people have a very limited uh, access to art because it's very few museums and so on, they, they really gave me a, a shot. And... My career started at 19 at Michigan State, painting over 30 murals in the city. But it came to the point that they trusted me so much that they wanted me to do... There's a sector in the city called Old Town Main Street, yeah. which is sector. And they didn't have enough mural artists. So they let me... They offered me this gigantic wall. It's like a very big wall, I would say... I don't know, 30 feet by 50 feet. It's just this big square, like side of the building. And I was very eager to start it. The point was that I wouldn't be able to do something like that alone. When I say alone, not painting alone, but organizing, paying for it. And I figured, and I, I really saw that in America, your only uh, block to be able to do a great work of art is resources. 
which is not the case in other places because I wish in many places it were just resources because of my Egyptian experience while I was in the United States. I, I didn't do a study abroad per se. I did go while I did attend AUC, which is an American university in Cairo, but I was also doing a lot of art. I was I, I mixed in with these people who were trying for the first time to open a cooperative in the in the Middle Eastern country with foreigners and women, everybody painting. And it was very interesting because unlike the United States, where it's only about resources, there we had to work with censors and hmm. people who, yes, I, I had never seen an, a censor before. Even in my country where we had like a dictatorship yeah. many years ago. We had censors, but I had never come across, like, met a person that had the political power to say that you couldn't do something. And they never censored on one of our works because we were pretty light. But I saw them censoring other works. For example, I'll give you an example. Like, I know it's properly blasphemous. I'm just saying that there is a religious freedom in America which doesn't exist in the Middle East. So, for example, in, in certain places, not all, I wouldn't say that either. But I would say that... For my experience, I saw a piece being censored, which was this like wooden uh, Netherlands type sandal. I don't know if you are aware, uh, if you know these like wooden sandals that the Dutch women used to wear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, it was one of those written with Arabic calligraphy. So they put a black piece, like, I don't know, they put like a, a black cloth on it and then the person had to remove it, you know, like this type of stuff was happening. Wow. So, and so, yeah, and, and, and this was when it was open-minded. Like, today, I wouldn't even... I, I probably... What we did in 2003, it's all verifiable in my sites and everything, is, is something that should actually be a motivational force in any repressed country, which is uniting the, the foreigners, uniting the genders, and bringing attention. Because the moment you unite these people, which are the minorities in general... And you and they start creating great art and calling attention to themselves. You will get a reaction, and this reaction, be it good or bad, it will be a reaction that you will learn from, and you will be able to to even if it's against you, you will become so much stronger, so much wiser when you understand where people can hurt you from and inhibit you from and stop you, that you actually become wiser. So after this experience, I returned to Brazil. And I started doing work here. And I, I saw another type of inhibition, which is it's very interesting because I lived in two places. I lived in Rio de Janeiro, which is this fantastic, gigantic capital. And now I live in central Brazil, like backwater. Mm -hmm. And I'll start with the good news first. Like here in this backwater, it's, like, it's very similar to Michigan. It's like the, the, uh, the direct opposite of a place like Lansing, Michigan, where instead of four months of, of winter... We have four months of just like extreme heat. Yeah, I was gonna so say it's, quite opposite like, on the on the weather. <laughs> yes, it is the opposite, but it's very incredible because it's like a country place too. So we have a lot of cows, we have a lot of fields. The mentality is very similar. And I, 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 this this is the crazy parallel because although you have this like backwater America and backwater Brazil, here I was able to exhibit in the most notorious places in the city like the most fantastic place in the city I had a chance like something that in Rio de Janeiro I was doing these outdoor murals paying for scaffolding you know like making getting clicks to work together to, and we got no notoriety we had nothing 
And the reason I thought was because of the saturation of the city, né? Because when you, for example, when you see how like graffiti artists working, and you, and it is very interesting because I love when graffiti artists work like painters because it's a very effective tool. When I say effective, which means like people look up and stop. Like yeah. this action of like looking up and stopping in the middle of the day is the effect that I want to cause. So uh, I see that when you have these gigantic projects, they're very expensive. They're not cheap. And they're, they're, these people are not doing them by themselves. They have family. They have, they have uh, businesses, perhaps, that, that support them. Because when you're actually like on the field, renting, like for example, for you to even rent a scaffold, you would have to be a company. And not everybody is a company. And all these things just add up to the bureaucracy. So the same way you would have, for example, in the United States, difficulties of, you know, you're a foreigner and you're not in the scene. And, but they give you the chance to exhibit and you do all this work and you, you make yourself your, your own man. In Cairo, you can try as hard as you can, but you have to watch out if people will censor you, if it's like a politically or religious delicate topic and in brazil it's like you can do whatever you want but you won't get any notoriety at all you just <laughs> you do whatever so you have these three different poles that is crazy just all it opposite is yes it's, it is different and it makes you feel that when you create like any piece of art that you shouldn't first you shouldn't even worry where you are because if you really worry where you are that's the thing is what's going to happen is what i hear many of my colleagues say which is this Lately, I did this mural, very recently, I did this mural with 10 other artists. But in the beginning, it was just four of us. And they were like, how are we going to fill up this, I don't know, 100-foot wall? Like, it's not very tall, but it's just very long, with only four artists. And I said, well, let's get the paints first. So we got all the paints, all from, like, donations and everything. We got a substantial amount of paint. And then we started painting. But in my vision, and this is my altruistic vision habit, Telling people things. Like when you, when you start painting on a wall, other artists start coming and they're like, oh, what you doing? Can I paint too? It's like, and you have the paints for free. You're like, sure, why not? The point was that there is this urge, perhaps, of certain mechanistic people, like, you know, institutionalized people, who really believe that a project should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I agree with that. Because the moment we started painting with these four people, this wall got kind of filled up, but there were many open spaces still. And more artists started coming, very interested, because the quality of the painters that we had were just awesome. And suddenly, the project was like, we have like two days left, and there's like three other people wanting to start. And you have this like clash of like priorities, and you end up, because of a plan, like where you don't flow with the plan, you end up inhibiting yourself and like self, and this is where I'm trying to get at, your self-censorship. When you start like just adapting to, the, to whatever rules you are following, but you inhibit your creativity in the process. And this is a, self, a type of self-censorship. And what is, I think, even worse than this, which becomes from, from the artist's perspective, which is, and this is, and I'm, going, I'm going to have some artists sending me hate mail for this, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, <laughs> which is only touching a canvas for money. And, this, and that's the main idea that I cannot, because I'm also a painter and I live with, of art and other things. I'm also a language teacher. 
And but the point is that I never contemplated painting something first because I was getting paid. No, and I mean, this is what made me a less mediocre artist. I want to agree one hundred percent with you on that because I think that if you start to think of, I mean, you bring up an an insanely good point in that artists typically will hold themselves back because they're trying to meet some kind of standard that they shouldn't be trying to meet. I agree. Um, and the beautiful part about art is you are creating it exactly how it's coming out of you. Yep. So what's the point of, of censoring yourself? And, and yep. yeah, and when you start talking about the different countries and being in like Cairo yeah. and how they self-censor things over there, uh, that can change everything. I mean, imagine if somebody told you know Van Gogh Yep. When he was young, that that he couldn't paint the way he was painting. Yeah. Um. What if he just gave up and didn't paint anymore? I mean, think about all the kids out there that are told, "Hey, you know, you can't make a living doing art. If you if you want to, you need to paint this certain way." And then they just give up arts altogether, and then all of a sudden we miss out on another dolly or something. Exactly. And in fact, and in fact, what happens to follow? Because I really enjoy teaching art for children. But I found out in my, my experience is that, you, again, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I'll say it. The most problem, the biggest problem kids, in my experience, they are the best artists. When I say best artists, it's me, it means just that, for example, you have this 15-year-old girl who is like promiscuously dancing already. You see this person totally developed. You know, she's 15, but you can see that she's thinking like a 25-year-old, yeah. but she can't stand still in the classroom. So you start, you know, giving her incentive to paint and doing it the right. I'm not going to explain my method, but you just give her the incentive to paint. In no time, you have, like, the best painter in the classroom, which is, like, the girl with the worst grades, with the worst reputation. And this happens constantly. And you see that the reason is, is because they didn't have a mother such as I, such as mine. For example, I was a pseudo-pseudo delinquent and my mother one day came up to me and said why don't you do art you're so good at it and I was like hey in fact I'll spend more time in my room drawing so instead of being out <laughs> in the street and just doing I don't know messed up stuff I, I I stayed in my room and I started painting but nobody has this like and my mother is I tell you she is the most lovable person but she's still learning a lot about art and while she didn't have to be any art connoisseur in, in any way to see that a delinquent, a potential delinquent, could be improved by just painting and drawing. And this is what I think the biggest pedagogical advantages of, of teaching art. Because if a teacher only focuses on a quiet classroom, for example, you will see that inspiration comes from people that have a life experience. And this is where I, I, I kind of studied for this interview, which is I wanted to really get into these phases and why phases are important for an artist. And I wasn't going to say like draw parallels with any other artists because I was just going to talk from my own experience. Absolutely, and, man. And I believe that these phases have a lot to do with your, and <clears throat> I'm going to cite a book. I think it's a very common book. People might know it. It's called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci by Michael Gelb, mm -hmm. which is a very good book talking about, concepts which da vinci used which helped him develop his creativity and this is what i'm seeing that many people and this i heard from many uh, psychologists which is the energy for violence and the energy for creativity is the same energy but put in different use so how do you change this use is developing 
I believe, and this happened to me, these concepts. And the first, and I think I knew this counter, uh, I knew this intuitively, which is, I'll say it in Italian and I'll say it in English. It's curiosità, curiosity. And this is something that I was drilled since I'm a child by my dad, which is have curiosity. If you don't know something, fuss around with it. If you, if you have doubts, just press the button, see if you can get yourself out of it. The point is not attempting is what stifles. Yeah. Not attempting. And so this is the first concept that I really grasped. That was perhaps 17, 18. And I believe that that's like not just being curious, curious, I had to strive for curiosity. And now comes after we start finding out these fantastic things in the world, we have to somehow show how they work. And this is like the analytical process. And Da Vinci called it demonstrazione, which is to demonstrate the world and showing that you can make mistakes, but from the mistakes you learn. So you can see already that you have from two, these, from just from these two concepts, which is demonstrating the world and being curious, is that you have the most, how can I put it, one of the most important learning tools of humanity, which is trial and error. So you're curious, you try, you, you demonstrate, you make a mistake. But from this trial and error, if you just do it many times, like a computer, sometimes you can, I'm, I'm definitely going to say that I overcame anybody, but I overtook anybody, but I definitely say that if you have a style that is within you, it would only come out with practice. A style that you develop only comes out from your incubation, as Da Vinci would say. And now comes, in my opinion, one of the most dramatic Western world problems, which is sensazione, which is constantly cultivating your sensibilities. Because people, they, for example, your tongue tastes more, your ear hears more, your eyes. <laughs> people have this idea, for example, that looking at a computer is going to make you blind. And that's not the case. When you look at physics, when you look at optics, what makes you blind is not using the capacity of your eye, which is focusing. So if you don't look at things which are far away and near and far away and then near, and you don't train these muscles in your eye to focus and, go and expand and focus, then you, you're, that's, you're, you're making a tool obsolete. Yeah. And this yeah. is what ends up happening with blindness because people have these paranoias and fears, but they don't understand. So they don't have this idea of developing their tastes. And for example, I'm not a big wine drinker, but I would love for somebody to, like a connoisseur of, of, of wine, to tell me the different aspects of how you describe wine. Or a person that understands impressionist painting, explaining to me why is an impressionist painting different from an expression. So this art history, this, this knowing the, 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 the tones of grace is perhaps a bad analogy, but knowing the difference and why the, it occurs is, I think, is sensazione. And now, again, there's, there's four more concepts, which I find is you only develop when you enter the, the vein of curiosity, because the next one is one of the most difficult, which is sfumato. Sfumato is going up in smoke, as, as Michael Gelb says, and which means being in a situation, for example, not letting your ego explode, for example. You are in a situation with great artists. And you are also a good artist. And you want to show absolutely how good of an artist you are. And sometimes that's where the mistakes come. The egos fight. So 
sfumato just means being able it's a technical it's a painting technique where you do very thin coats of paint but this is the idea that you're not there thick you're just there very thin and observing more and understanding more and letting others talk and and listening how of because you will see that the same mistakes that you were going to commit if you opened your mouth others will commit and you were <laughs> and exactly people people really do this they they start talking and they want to say how much how great their work is but then they, they, they forget that there are so many preconceptions of what great is that they rather should like learn from the other and build on the other's work that the other creates an appreciation for your personality, for your person, and then you actually become friends and admire each other, not have to convince each other. So this idea of sfumato is also very important. Since I think that perhaps children, for the next concept, really follow it the most, which is a concept called arte cienza, which is art and science. And I think that children do this unconsciously. Before, even before curiosity, which is drawing spaceships, drawing future, drawing the past, drawing when, for example, you draw a caveman and you, 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 you use those, those images that you learn from the Discovery Channel. This is a form of arte cienza because you are, you're taking a very scientific, anthropological, ethnographic view and then transforming it into imagination. And people really think that science and art and philosophy are these, are these spheres that are impenetrable and you cannot work together. And it's the complete opposite. The moment that they unlink is the moment that it, the whole organism uh, shreds. There is an expression in physics. I don't know if you're aware, there's a, there's a ring. There are three rings. This is used in the Middle Ages as well. These three interconnecting rings called the Baromian Rings, which was a symbol of the church, honor. It was church, honor, and strength, if I, don't, if I believe. But the point was that these three rings were interconnected in such a way that when you remove one of them, all three of them fall apart. And I believe that we are something like this, where we have these wonderful concepts like art and science and philosophy, and, and we have segregated them to such a point where the artists is a capitalist only. I'm also a capitalist, but not only, you know, I'm do, I do other things as well. And while the, the scientist is only like a state person, he only answers to the state as though science were like subsidized. And then the philosopher is a person that is so introvert and has, is, has such a big disconnect from society that they categorize him in some kind of subculture. So I really believe that I ignored all these concepts and I saw, well, I have a philosophical background, I have an artistic background, I have a very strong scientific background. How can I merge these things even though I didn't have a great painting background? It's called curiosity. I started looking up sacred geometry, I started looking up perspective, and although I, I never had a formal painting class, I did have theoretical art classes and I was able to deduce. And some people really believe that everything has to be this top-down, degree-oriented knowledge base, which is erroneous, because it just shows that all... <laughs> it's erroneous, because it makes... Erroneous! All the, yes! It, I love it that makes all, 
Hey, indeed, because it, it's not it's, it's very light-minded to say that we should. What what better way is there, Enrique? What else? Because this is the deal. When you grow up with a lot of mechanistic people, like physicists and bank people, you you start having like the most cruel, how can you say, arguments for your for your thesis. So people will say. Who are you to change anything? And I say, well, it's true. Who am I to change anything? And that's the point. I'm not parting from the perspective of changing anything. I'm passing from the perspective of showing you something. I'm not changing you. I'm showing you something. And so people really equate that the moment that somebody like, you know, a philosopher, a, a social scientist starts complaining about the mechanistic way of society, the first thing they say, what are you going to do about it? And I say, well, doing is not the right word. Perhaps showing is a different word. And why do I say this? Because recurrently, when you have delinquency, especially like in... And when I, I'll give a little bit of the background. I used to teach in the ghetto slums of, of Rio de Janeiro, which is a very adverse environment. And you could see that the children there are very neglected. And But I did it for a few years. And you could see that the improvement... Even without math, even without any other kinds of pedagogical tools of school, you can see that curiosity is, comes before education. It's not, it's not even like, uh, education is almost like a, a box of toys. Uh, uh, not sorry, that analogy would be the education is the toys, curiosity is the box. So you, you, you really have to develop a big box to put a lot of toys in it which are the school toys, which are your, your curiosity. So people don't develop this like comprehension that knowing is much more important than doing. Because when you start doing something, you enjoy it, you become a professional, and you forget knowing. And this is what happens. People who do a lot of things become these great professionals, and they ne not neglect, which is not the right, but they don't put enough importance on the fact that when you develop your artistic skills, you're developing yourself. And this goes yeah. for, and, and this goes for, for example, physicists. My father is a great nuclear physicist. And he's, he's in, and everybody talks, when you think physics, the first thing you think is Einstein. And, and, you, and I really admire this person, not necessarily because of the theory of relativity, it's because he was a violin player. And you can see that, like, for example, many people who have this out-of-the-box view of life is because they practice art. It's not because they are, how can you say, wealthy. It's because they know more. Because if it were just about knowing more, we wouldn't be in the energy mass. We wouldn't be in this ecological mass. It's not about knowing more. It's about approach. And yeah, the first yeah. approach, like, a, like, like we talked about, is the artist who will criticize any art. For example, I've had this criticism many times. I'm painting, I'm, I'm creating a mural, and I'm taking my time. That is, like, other people will paint, like, four hours, I'll paint two weeks. Like, really, taking my time. And so I'm taking my time after a week and a half. People are like, you didn't finish yet? I'm like, no. But they're like, don't you know they're going to erase it? And I was like, yes. But aren't you, don't you get angry that you're putting so much work and they're going to erase it eventually? I said, well, yes, I will perhaps get a little upset, but should my being upset inhibit me creating? Then I shouldn't create anything. I should just stay at home because I'm upset about a bunch of other things, not just art. So that's not the, the issue.
So what happens is that we have these people who really, and this is, and now comes my criticism, really view art as an object, not as a as a as a as a magic spell. Perhaps I'm even exaggerating, but the point is that they don't see art as a as a as a potential mechanism of change. They just see art as a as a form of decoration, as a form of of advertisement, as a form of social movement. And this is and I have a critique about this too, which is using art in social movements. For example, you have as we have you have this movement in Russia called constructivism. And you have this art that is like square and monstrous and you have all these machines and people are small compared to the machines and when they're not small they're just just like they look like horses because they're so strong and determined looking but nobody is questioning that this art is actually molding you the same way as any image would mold you but because it is art because it is uh, stylistically put people don't see it as a form of mind conditioning, don't see it as a form of, of trend setting of, you know, and, I'm, and, and I, I'm a great admirer of, of the American entrepreneur and I'm a great admirer of, of painters of America that painted nature. But mm-hmm. there is a big difference between the painters that followed Second World War, for example, and the painters that preceded, the, you know, preceded, like like Turner and like other people. He was British, but the point is that there are many other painters that are only valued because of a niche and not necessarily valued because people understand them. In other words, you have people who are being like used as pawns for political means, but when you look at their art per se, you cannot remove him from that political movement. For example, you can't remove constructivism from... From, from Russian communism. You can't remove uh, uh, that, that political propaganda from like uh, we, uh, I want you type Uncle Sam imagery from, from capitalism and all the imagery it brings you. So what art is there really that is not politically oriented but makes you feel? And this is where I really believe we should head to. We should head to an art that is a scientific art but studies... The body, the same way a neuro, neurologist studies the body or your reactions, art can do the same. Art can say, well, I don't want him to see water. I don't want him to be impressed by how I paint water. I want him to feel wet. And yeah, this is yeah. the difference that people really don't get. They really believe that if they do something photorealistic, if they do something that is fantastically technically made, that it automatically persuades you to feel wet and it's not the case because and this is what i was studying lately which is why am i why am i looking at all this wonderful art which is very well made but why am i not impressed because suddenly i'm I'm paging through my art collection and suddenly i get impressed and why do i get impressed by one painting and not another which is like there is a movement that i think people know a lot which is called surrealism and and this is a very, very strange movement because the, the least accepted member of this movement is the most renowned. And this is very crazy. It's, it's like Dali is renowned for a movement that he was expelled from. So it's, it's, it's very strange. So I started studying a guy named Max Ernst, which is this painter, 
which Drew did some, and, I, and again, I'm, he did it already. So if your listeners listen to this and I'm going to do similar work, I encourage others because it's only going to improve art if we approach this, which is, this person did a technique called frottage. Frottage is when you take all these different objects and you put them on the ground and you take your canvas and you put them over these objects and then you, you trace with trace, no, you rub with a vegetable coal, you rub the impression from these objects that are under this canvas. And the image that appears is completely abstract. It's like, it's, it's just a reg, it's like a bunch of mishmash of like impressed screws and bolts and hammers and all these objects that are just have the impression. What now comes the genius? The genius is to be able to imagine things and to see the shapes in the abstraction. And personally, this is what made me is, is made me curious about showing better. I rephrase. This is what made me think that art was a mechanism of change, which is you're looking at a piece of abstract material like completely unrecognizable, just just lines and shapes. And suddenly you start thinking about, I don't know, waterfalls. And suddenly those shapes become rocks. And then you see a flowing line, you're like, oh, that's water. And suddenly you have this like abstract waterfall made from faces and objects, and you don't know how they came about, but the, the imagery that appears was inside of you. It wasn't something that like, okay, the shadowing of this leg is not as good. And it's not a painting that impresses. It's a, it's a, thing that, it's a painting that makes you imagine. And I've made, I drew an analogy because all art is, is valid. I'm, who am I to say something? Cave art is as valid as any, but any Da Vinci or something. Why are they just as valid? Because they are in their own time. Like they're, all these pieces of art represented something in their own time. So the importance is never taken away. But if they're going to perpetuate a, an idea, that's something different. And you can see from history that this approach at achieving perfection is an approach that is neglected eventually. There is an example of the boy of, uh, the boy of Crete was the sculpture that was found in the Greek islands, which is like, I don't know, hundreds of years before crisis. This Greek sculpture, maybe thousand, I don't know, it's, it's incredibly old. But it was just as perfect as any Michelangelo, which was in, in, the, six, in the 1500s, mm -hmm. in the 1600s. As, as, as perfect as any Michelangelo, as any, and why did these people stop sculpting perfection hundreds of years, bef 2,000 years before Michelangelo? Why did they stop? And it's because of this urge of mannerism is the urge of not just having it told to you is the urge of seeing things is the urge of letting your mind wander and this is taken away from us when we have everything just drawn out and and we have and it's fantastic because i see some fantastic art i see uh, photorealistic art on walls which is it's, it's very good it's it's a very beautiful thing, which I, I respect and I encourage, and I think that people should continue doing this. What I am just putting a comma at is, okay, you did this wonderful piece of art, which is political, inquisitive, and makes people think, but this is only one aspect of art, which is reflection. Now comes imagination. 
which is being able to take an abstract image and not just doing an abstract image for the abstraction of it, is knowing that people will be able to see shapes and, and use their imaginative cognition, which is learning how to imagine. And people really ought to, when you, for example, Michelangelo would say, find like a dirty wall or your, 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 your floor uh, uh, pattern. And you start looking at and finding images in it. This is a healthy exercise. The same way when you are going to the eye doctor and the eye doctor is going to tell you, go outside, look at trees and do active things. It's the same thing. You're exercising. And, it, which is, and finally, which leads to my, my, one second, and finally leads me to the two last, two last concepts of Da Vinci, which are corporalità and connezione. And connezione, which is, I think, knowledge. And this is what happens. I think people really feel very satisfied with, with a very limited amount of knowledge because Many aspects of artists' life have been how can I substitute is not the right word, but have been, because substitute implies that you are doing something else, but have been taken away, I believe. Because the moment you do a lot of art and you become financially successful, and you start seeing that it's not about the art anymore, it's about your person and your the people you know, the places you start selling, and so on, you see that you produce less. And this happens, it doesn't have to be the greatest artist in the world. Anybody who's only doing art for notoriety and not for the art will reach this point where they will become famous, they will become recognized, even if it's just 15 minutes. And then, if this person, this artist, is not strong enough, they will capitulate. They will just allow this fame to stagnate them. And this happens a lot, and I see it. And I see people who are much younger than me, who, who have just gave, given up on, on, on evolution and, and, and stuck with one style which sells. And this is what happens. You will stagnate. Art, any type. You can, and how do I know this? What, what, who, what is your reference, Enrique, to be able to say that if you don't produce art, you will stagnate? My, my biggest proof is the unfinished sculptures of most people. Anybody who does sculptures will eventually unfinish a sculpture, which is not finish a sculpture. You start doing the sculpture, ta, 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 you bang away, and suddenly you're like, oh my God, this is going to take forever. I'm not going to continue, and you stop. And this is the idea. You're not doing this because you want to finish the damn thing completed. You're doing it because it's a process. And this is what I am looking at my friends, my fellow artists, and I'm seeing that when I attempt a mural, it has to be a mural that has no time to finish because if you're doing a mural and it's not like this egocentric trip of yours, more artists will appear every single time this happens. And I've done dozens of murals outdoor. Other artists will, will appear. They will want to participate and it's the nobility of the artist to say yes or no. When the artist is a person that really cares and knows that the more the merrier, which, which is the fact, the more the merrier. There, there are not, there, 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 there will never be enough artists to fill up every wall. And this competition there exists is, is, is childish and naive. 
because it's an ego trip based on the culture of the best. It's not based on the culture of change. And the culture of change, which is in a, now perhaps it's time for the most beautiful story that, that I have concerning art, is that in, in, in Rio de Janeiro, there is a historical center which is very neglected. And unfortunately, they don't have any galleries. They only have like this night, like strong nightlife, but they don't have galleries. And the next day, the whole place is just trashed, with broken glass, smells like, you know, you know, those, those, like New Orleans type stuff. Like you go in like Mardi Gras, every Friday is Mardi Gras. And yeah. it's like, yeah. it's, and it's, it's not a very pleasant place to be the next day. And people live there and I live there. So I started painting this mural on a historic building which was neglected, abandoned, and falling apart. And I started noticing the following. The first week, there was a lot of curiosity from the, from the, uh, the town drunks. I mean, the people who like slept over under the arches, which, which was in front of Lapa's Arches, which is this big historical monument. And they would come and bother you and be like, and, and you would be very polite, but you would ignore them eventually. And then they would leave because you wouldn't give them enough uh, time of, of your day. A week later, you would see that it's, the place is emptier, which means all those people who were just like, they don't feel well with, with like organized and clean people painting. They, don't just, they just get away from you. The next step was that before, you wouldn't see the, the parents taking their children to school through that way. And suddenly, we would see the parents bringing their children through our way, stopping in front of the mural, showing what we were doing. After all, we were doing this for like four months every day. The point was not to do and leave. Our point was to stay there and transform that very unhospitable place. It's not, it's not even... I could, I could only use the derogatory words to say things like this. So I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding. The point is that the children started returning. It's almost like nature. We have this like wasteland and you start cultivating it and suddenly the plants start growing. It's the same analogy. When you do art only for ego, you stay there for four hours and you disappear and nobody even knows you. They might look at your art, but they don't see the artist working. But the moment they see the artist working, the moment they see the effort put into a piece of art, people stop and people contemplate and people reflect and people think, oh my God, it can be different. Not everybody is just looking out for their own. And I am also looking out for my own, but my own also includes the, the well-being of my community. So it's, it's again, I'm, again, I have the most capitalist that you could possibly imagine. I love making prints and selling. It's not the issue. It's just that your community is the first one that will appreciate you. So if you really want to be a person that is renowned and respected, first be so in your community. Then think about other places. Because the moment that you are recognized in other places before your community, I think that the first thing they're going to say to you is that you sold out. While the opposite happened to me, which was I started doing things in my community first, and then other people from my community are like, hey, Enrique, there's a mural that Old Town wants to paint. Why don't you go there? And I go, okay, I'll go there. Introduced by a person who watched my art being created. And this is what ends up happening. Artists who are just looking out for their own are always going to be like this survivalist attitude, which is, oh, I have to survive, I have to look out for my own. And I say, you are living in tough times to be an artist. I'm not just an artist. I'm also an English teacher. 
I can repair inflatables. I can do many things. I'm an eclectic person. Yeah. But there is this Pollockian, perhaps, way of thinking, which is, oh, my paintings are not recognized by the market and I need to sell and this market is corrupt and I have to go against the market. <laughs> and, oh, these people are just evil who don't love me. And I'm saying, no, what, I, what you should be thinking about is, well, first, if your art is not recognized, it's because you're not touching their souls. You're not making them feel. And the moment you make people feel, you start recognizing that art that makes you feel and art that makes you be recognized is much different. And this is what I'm trying to hit. When you see those artists in, in the big metropolitan American cities who are doing these fantastic photorealistic murals, that's art to impress. And I'm telling you what, what the difference is from artists like in Mexico City. When you go there, you see them working for like weeks at a time in a mural, like weeks, because they don't have the scaffold. They're rappelling down the walls and so on. You can see that there's a, a genuine admiration for the process. And people stop and you can see that there is an incentive by other artists who are not as qualified. For example, I'm definitely not qualified compared to like all kinds of painters, but I have the courage and they have the courage. They have the paints. I have the paints. So only because you have, you, you, like they say in this movie called Full Metal Jacket, it's called, <laughs> if you have guts, guts is enough. And people really believe it's the opposite, that it has to be like this fantastic quality. No. If you have guts and you have courage and you have permission, okay, maybe not even all the time permission, but you should attempt an outdoor piece of art to see the true critique, which is you spend not only a few hours, you spend actually a few weeks in front of a wall. You get to know the people in the neighborhood. You see that you hear the problems of the neighborhood. People start counting on you as a, as a voice of the neighborhood. And you can see that this transformative art is never seen. For example, my, none of my murals, for example, my greatest piece of art, which is, which is in this laboratory, this physics laboratory in, in Michigan, was never written about. But I spent months, I spent a whole month every day painting this mural, learning about the physics uh, uh, concepts and, and knowing the people. And I put all kinds of people, the names of all kinds of people on my mural. I said, this person, like 10 people helped me with ideas. So I put all their names on the wall. And this mural was, I didn't even know how it was going to finish. I just knew the beginning and I knew that the ideas, if I start talking to people, that they would come. And this is what happens. People have this preconceived idea that they have to have this like stencil technique, the scaffolding, everything has to be like lined up. If you don't have that, you, it's not going to work out. And it's not like that. The humbler, the, I think sometimes the humbler the piece of art, the more it makes people not feel as, as pity, but they feel like, oh, look at that. Somebody painted something there. How, how cool. And it's not like this. Love. I don't want to mention artists that like, how can I say these, these fantastic photorealistic murals that when you see them, you are impressed, you reflect, but you don't feel. And, this, and, and, and how do I say I don't feel? Because feeling is a, is a nerve ending, not a rational. For example, when you're looking at something like, Michelangelo's and Da Vinci's and you see those images, you have to first know symbolism. If you don't know that Santa Anna, if you don't know that's Jesus, if you don't know that, you just don't know it, period. You're just going to think it's like middle-aged people. I mean, uh, 
people from the Middle Ages or something. If you don't know the symbolic reference, you know nothing. Second, if you look at those paintings and you say that they are making you feel and not reflect, then I would say that other peoples were more successful than the, than the Renaissance people. And you look at the real movement of the Surrealists and the Expressionists, because they drove away the idea that you have to have these delineated lines to evocate an imaginative reaction out of people. And, it's, and that's what happens. That's why people like you know the, the Dutch painter Van Gogh and all those people, they went against the grain, they did not fare well, and after like they're gone, nobody could reproduce them. So people start realizing, oh my God, so art is not just what can be reproduced, it's also what is unique. And this uniqueness of, of expressionism is, 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 is diluted the moment that people only attribute a, a reflexive, which is like the perfection value of things. So people really believe that, for example, you take other abstract art. And you say, what is the difference between a good abstract art and, a, and I, I would say a bad abstract art? Is how much of the canvas is used as a tool. And I think that many people don't use the canvas as a tool. They use it as a surface. So they try to put all these colors next to each other. And, and I'll give you an example. For example, you take a painter that is my limit of abstraction, of like understanding, a person like Rothko. Rothko was this guy who painted these like complementary color squares, one inside another. And complementary colors, when you look at healing medicine, are activating colors. So the mere fact that he was doing something, perhaps conscious or not, but the point that it has a, has a direct physiological effect on you, was a success that perhaps you didn't count on. So art can have a physiological effect on you. It can, you can look at as a combination of colors, and suddenly you feel well. And this wellness is not attributed to medicine. It's attributed to a memory that came to you because you saw that color. And people forget these this nuances that art is there to some... And I say, now comes a very controversial word, to help. And how, why do I say to help? Because when you look at, like, cave art, what was this person thinking and what is like a modern painter thinking, I don't think is different. I think that the moment those people created the pigment, went into a place where they wanted to paint that thing, they're helping themselves somehow. They're helping them make sense of the world. They're helping others make sense of who they are. And it's, it's a form of like medicine. And the moment that you take art and you overemphasize aspects of, like, for example, a food has many nutrients. A food has vitamins, acids, and, 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 and minerals. And there is, a food is not just protein. It's not just minerals. It's a combination of these things. But I'm feeling that gradually artists who are beginning, they will look at all these wonderful photorealistic arts. And it's... And I, I think it has to do with personal strength, but they get disillusioned because they really believe that when you see all this perfection being already done is that you could not replicate it in some other way and you feel small and you feel powerless. And not that other people should stop, on contraire, they should continue doing the great photorealistic art, but the people who don't know how to do it should also be educated on whether 
art can have other forms of of reaching people so it's a i think of art as a tool more than as a as a means i mean better as an end tool and means rather than an end and finally it will come to the it will come to a point i believe where we will have you heard of a painter called botero botero is this guy who does like really fat people he does like everybody's fat like it's a spanish painter who who does like mona lisa but chubby and fat uh, he does only this like fat he's a very modern painter but potero does this it's very interesting because everybody knows potero is a very fantastic painter has a style of painting everybody chubby and round but then he did this exhibition and this is very anachronical because he did this exhibition called abu grab which was all the tortures that they did in this like uh, prison in 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 in, in iraq so he was depicting these horrible scenes of like torture, but he's a very, very classic, I mean, the, the, this scholastic painting style, but in a modern form, which is like all the colors of skin are all realistic and everything. But so he did all these paintings, which had ter- horrific torture scenes, but in his style. So everybody's chubby, but it's horrific. So you can see that it's horrific. Yeah, they're horrific paintings. And everybody's chubby, and and you 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 figure out why is he able to like even with his chubby style, with his like comedy style, able to portray such an exhibition. And this is the idea because art is not a, just a visual thing; it's also symbolic. When I say visual thing, is colors. When I say symbolic thing, is is uh, calligraphy or or. We know, for example, that these people are being tortured because of the facial expressions of the paintings, because of, of the red blood that's on the wounds. Because sometimes you look at classic paintings, you think those people are like, I don't know, swooning, but they're like, you read the description, it's like suffering a lot and almost dying. And it's like, no, they don't look like that. <laughs> and this is what I'm trying to get, that people really believe that one size fits all and it's not. The moment you want to apply your style but you have a different type of meaning, you can do that. You are able to to take your style and and portray a new face. And it all has to do with an experience. So I can imagine that one day Botero is painting his chubby Mona Lisa again and suddenly he's like, oh my God, they did that and and this experience made him... what he saw made him change a phase of his life. So artists need to experience to change phases in their lives. People really believe, for example, falling in love changes. Traveling to places changes. But if you fall in love and you don't find out how your love is, it changes you little. If you travel and you don't explore, it changes you little. So it's not a one-size-fits-all idea. It's for example, in the beginning, you traveled abroad to see the cool building. So you go your first, take your first trip, you have your camera, and you take this like 200 pictures, if not more, of like buildings. And you're like, whoa, and you never look at those buildings again. Yeah. And then yeah. the next trip you take, you, you start, oh, okay, I saw the buildings, I want to like know the cafes. So you go and you find, you explore a little bit more and you find the cafes. But in this exploring, you meet a person. And this person takes you to all the niches that you could never have 
been to now comes. Now, for the first time, you have access to the true smells, the true sights, the true uh, uh, senses of what is being in that place. Because when you go there for the first time, you go with a like a F, uh, ethnocentric dome around you. Like everything is a reference to where you come from. But the moment you're taken by the hand by a native, a local, and he's like, okay, we're going to walk in here, but don't be scared. Or, or this is a place that is like this, but don't act this way. So these notions that you cannot be yourself the way you are all the time change you and make you tolerant and make you reflect. And people really will have to do this. Like a, a New York artist has to go to a Middle Eastern country because the moment he were to go there, he will know he would, the best thing that you can do as an artist is go to a place where art is not allowed or at least not allowed the way we are used to it in Western societies. Because then you would see the power of the tool that you wield. Because this, this tool called art is a tool that not changes. We have these like silly words like change, modify. It's not change and modify. They add to you. And this, what they're adding to you is what we conceive as change. Because you never really change. You just neglect certain aspects of you and allow other aspects of you to come up to the forefront yeah, and this is what happens yeah then you go to a place like or, or michigan for example when i went to michigan and i felt like i was this like long-haired crazy hyperactive artist and i really wanted to do as much as i could in as little time as possible and i and i figured that no and, and i saw very quickly that very few were like me wanting to do murals so i just stood out in a place that nobody was doing what i was doing so artists have to think like that too. Like they want to stand out. They don't. They can't go to New York City. This is the wrong conception. People want to be rich. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be admired by for their art. They want to have their ego elevated, not the art. So if you want to elevate your art, what do you do? You go to a place that there has no art, and you start doing art, and you will see that the people, the mayors, although the the classes that are also in New York, they also exist in these other places and they admire you and they value you. And you will start seeing that this, this hype that is being in a big city is also good. But go there as a visitor, meet a New York and walk around with him. It will bring you much more delight than actually attempting a piece of art in a major metropolis. And I say it from my own experience. The murals I did in Michigan were and were so much more gratifying than the murals I did in Rio de Janeiro. In, in a big city, it's, it's, it's always neglect. People look at your art and it's too much going on for yeah, you to yeah. be noticed. Well, when you are in, in Michigan, I got first page covers and, and I wasn't even, not even close to being that good. So, but because of this lack, this, this like people want art, then people admire you. And, and this is the, the, it should be an outside of the box thinking with, with people, which is, what do I want from art? Do I want to make money, be a professional? Then I have to be a scholastic painter because I, th this is my experience. The painters that live off art are the painters who are professional. And when I say professional, I mean a very specific term, which is reproducing a same style always which means you are painting a, 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 a still life 
and you can paint many still lives and you will not feel sick of it. So this idea of a professional painter, from my observation with other artists, is, is, is a cruel world, which means many of these people, and I'll be very frank, many of these people don't even have portfolios because they have to paint so fast, so many commissions. They don't have time to take a picture. Most of my great scholastic painter friends, they don't know how to use the internet. They don't really care about using the internet <laughs> because they say, well, why should I have a portfolio? Every time I paint something photorealistic on a canvas, people buy it. So why should I care? And this is the idea. The idea is that one thing is for you to live off art. And one thing is for you to create art as a means. And this is where I'm at. Because, of course, I would like to sell a painting or two. But I guarantee you that it has never crossed my mind that it would be a main goal of mine to just sell paintings. I would rather, for example, think of selling posters or selling prints, learning uh, uh, printmaking, but learning something that doesn't necessarily make me a slave of my style, which is if I can make a painting that's beautiful and I can make a hundred prints of it, I would just choose to do that and then I have a beautiful portfolio. But most people don't do that. They do the opposite. They are fantastic painters. They don't take pictures. They neglect the fact that we live in a, in a singularity of information where at any second, at any moment, you can find any information you want. And people, need, they, they really don't find this as attractive as I do because I see painting as a means. Every day I see a new technique being implemented. Every day I see a new style being shown. But a person that paints... Impression. A person that has put himself in a style where he cannot change his phases only shows me that he's not perfecting the rest of his whole thinking. And then comes, of course, people like Van Gogh and they, as the surrealists, maybe removing Dali, are people who are very unrecognized and they had terrible lives in terms of, 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 of selling their art and hard times selling the art. But... This is what knowledge is, is to recognize, okay, I want a piece of art to decorate my living room or I want a piece of art that inspires me, that reminds me of something. And this is what the, the professional artist will thrive because most, the, the, I would say 99.9, .9, but I, you can't say 100%. But most people, before they look at your art, they look at how big the canvas is. And this is something that it, it's like an other way around thinking. They shouldn't look at if that painting fits in your living room. Why? And you walk into a gallery, regardless of how rich you are, regardless of what you are, why would you look at a painting and see first if it the fits size. in your living room? Size. Size. And, it's, and this is where, for example, I get screwed over all the time because my paintings are huge. Nobody wants to buy them because they're big. But the idea is that it's forcing me to paint smaller which is if it's good or not, I'm trying to adapt to a market. But the idea is that the thinking that a piece of art is still a decorational piece is, a, is an idea that is from the Renaissance. Né? It's not a modern idea. The modern idea, for example, what would be a modern idea? And this is, I'm being audacious here, but I'll say it. A modern idea would be for you to remove decorative stuff from your living room to put something imaginative in your living room. Yeah. yeah. 
Exactly. I'm so you're doing removing it right now. We're getting rid of everything in the house and bringing in things that alter more creativity. Exactly. Imagine children growing up around stuff. For example, I walk into these rich people's houses and they have these like fantastic crystals and fantastic like pure one type stuff. I'm sorry, but it's just it's like industrialized art type stuff everywhere. And you can see that the maids are like double time cleaning all that stuff. And then you go up to the person and say, where is your, where is your painting? And you, they, they point at a painting that they have and it's, and it's a very, because this, when you call somebody else's art mediocre, you, you, all you're trying to say is that it's average, okay? When you're trying to say some, some art is inspirational, it's something that you would remove something to, to put that, substitute it with. So all I'm saying is this, that mediocre art is art that is average, art that you buy to decorate a wall. Inspirational art is art that perhaps might be more expensive, because it's an individual who produced it, not a machine. And but you get lost, it's art. Lost. Exactly. You have to in your memory. It's like a taste. How many times have you smelled the synesthesia? Synesthesia, I think it's in English, which is you smell something, you imagine something. You smell something, you automatically taste it. You the smell, I think, is a very strong scent because it's such an immaterial scent that it shows us how strong we can imagine. So you feel this, the smell of a cake or the smell of a type of smoke and, you, and your memory goes away. It's almost like smoke becoming an image. And this is where I'm trying to get at, where, where you paint these canvases in a true surrealist style, which is allowing the artist or better forcing the artist to see the shapes is a way for the observer of this art to see how the artist is thinking. Because I, don't, I cannot even conceive, and I think it's, it's a misnamer to say that uh, uh, the art reflects the artist. I don't think that's the case. I think that many artists will choose what is more successful. And from this choice of what is more successful, uh, extrapolate, create more, rather than do something that they enjoy and they believe is important, even if the rest of society doesn't believe is important. And this is why I believe that artists should be eclectic people. They shouldn't just be painters. They should be inventors, language teachers, art teachers, sports teachers. Just, they have to, they, they really, there's a song by Beastie Boys, which is, you got to fight for your rights to party. And I think the artist is only in a party when he does what he wants. If he's only doing what other people enjoy, he's not being himself. And I couldn't, and agree, I couldn't more. agree more. Yeah. Now, I, no, I, think, I that think that a huge amount of that amount is definitely applying all of your focus to it because you actually, actually love it. Love and when you start yeah. to start love something, something so, much, so much, the trust the will trust build around it. Um, and you don't have to, you don't have to bow down to anybody else's standards. And I love this quote. Uh, it's from the uh, Alex from Gray Alex website. I don't know if you're familiar with. Yes, that. of course I'm. Of course yeah. I'm familiar with Alex Gray. And Great it's Alex. not his quote, but it's of all the forces: the strong and the weak, the gravitational, the electromagnetic. The strangest, strongest forces of all is the force of love. Yes. And I think that if you are a true artist and you stay true to your style, and you don't, you don't have to succumb to what other people think. You don't. You don't. Uh, fall victim to an ego 
Yes. And you focus on that actual passion and that love. I think that community will build around you, even if you have to be, you know, an English teacher on the side, or even if you have to have a day job, because all of us, I mean, I have a day job. So it all, it all binds back together, together. And, 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 uh, Enrique, I have to ask you this because I ask everybody this. Yes. If you had to battle Godzilla, how do you use your creativity or talent to defeat that big crazy bastard? Funny, funny question because it it has this. See, you you made me goosebumps because you you were forcing me to 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 cite the Tao Te Ching from from Taoist philosophy. The soft will always overcome the strong. Mm-hmm. So. In whatever way, the gentle will always overcome the respite. In whatever way, this monster would, uh, would attack us. Whatever form would be the, like an Occam's razor type of analogy, would be the simplest solution possible. So if I were to reflect just a few seconds here, what would I do? I would... <laughs> Uh, see, I, I, what comes through my mind is sculptures, gigantic. I would make a gigantic sculpture of a woman Godzilla. <laughs> it's a silly answer, perhaps, but I, what I'm trying to say is that you wouldn't be able to overcome a monster if you were just another monster. Yeah, You have to somehow be gentle. And I believe that, for example, I think that I've been reading lately about wicked fathers and the artists and many of the great like for example you take kafka many writers had very writers especially painters too but writers especially had very strict fathers and it's exactly this cruelty that allows the softness of your art to come through it's exactly this idea that you have to filter injustice you have to filter your indignations through something that is understandable or convertible for you to be able to question it. Because the moment that you have these ultra photo, for example, you take a film like, you, you know, I'm going to say this. For example, you take the movie like Transformers, which is a fantastic computer animation film, which is fan- I like it. The first, the second, but now they make seven of them, 20 of them. It's like they built on an idea that was right and then they, they just reproduce it and they, they, they feel comfortable with this. And this is what I'm, my, my critique is, that only because something sells, you don't have to like fool people into buying the same piece of art seven times. A piece, for example, I can't go around and just sell seven million prints of mine but a movie can go out and sell 7 million prints of that movie. Of course, it's, a, it's an art form, but if an artist like myself were to do it, I would be very criticized that I'm mass producing my art. But the moment you have the movie, especially the movie industry, creating like these trilogies where you have these like good movies that could be normally done in one film, three-hour film, they choose to make a trilogy out of it. And I think that there is a, a very funny spoof out of that. It's, it's uh, what's their name? Screen Junkies. There you go. There's a group called Screen Junkies. 
that does this YouTube channel called Honest Trailers. And I, I just crack up at that because this is where art comes in again. Because you have these like multi-million dollar movies that you know are famous worldwide. But then you have this one guy with a good voice making an honest trailer and he gets tens of millions of people seeing him as well. So what is really bringing the tens of millions of people? Is it the ultra effects or the wittiness and intelligence of people? See? And this is my argument. That people shouldn't like think, oh my God, I did this fantastic piece of art, but I have to keep on doing that. If I don't, I'll just not sell. No, you're saying that you're not witty. You're saying that you're not cultivating the soil from which your, cur cur your creativity derives. You have to cultivate the soil from where your creativity derives so you don't have to worry about having ideas. While others, no, they plant this, they have this like wonderful tulip that grows and they're like, oh my God, look at this tulip. You have to water this tulip. The tulip is everything. And then if tulip dies, which is, I don't know, Transformers 16, the, the Dinobots return. And then it's like, oh my God. So it wasn't that good after all because it was diluted in so much. Well, and, and this is what happens. And people don't reflect that you're being sold the same product seven times. There's no difference. And, that, and you can say this with, with any trilogy that is like the same movie. For example, I read, and now comes my biggest critique. I read, you read The Hobbit probably. There was a book when I was like in my teens called The Hobbit. And you yeah, read that book. movie's coming out too. I know, this is what exactly what I'm trying to get at, which is, all the imagination is taken away from you. Why the heck do they have to choose all the great classics and make movies out of them? None of them. And this is the, this is what money, I don't man. I, exactly. And all the people out there that aren't willing to sit down and use their creativity and, and imagine things themselves through reading the books that just why don't they want to sit down for two hours and, and get it out of their system. But it, it's insane the difference between a book and a movie, you know? And, but there is a big pathology behind that because, for example, the same way I become blind if I don't train focusing my eye, that is looking at trees that are far away, trees that are close, far away. If I don't do that, I become blind. And the mind is the same thing. The mind has this idea that it has to go in different places all the time, changing phases to become healthy, to become aware. Because the moment you start only working on that one project that, was, that went well, you're forgetting the, the soil from where it came from. And the soil is what you are. And you are not your art. The art is just like a, a, a skin that you shed. And people are so like, mat materialist is not the right word, but they, they attach themselves to these illusions, which is my art, this movie, uh, this style, mm -hmm. and they they forget that what they are within them is so much more powerful. And it, and it, it could be the ghettoest ghetto child with the richest, richest kid. And I've had this opportunity. And only when you have this opportunity, when you see the neglect is neglect with the most invested investment, which are these two children, and you see that the creativity is the same. The only thing that changes is the challenges that are put before them by a teacher. The moment you have teachers that put great challenges before a, 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 a child, you will be surprised how smart they are because people think, really, I'll be very frank. What we do today, like many of these paintings, 
Like when you look at the classical era, these people were doing that in their teens because they had people investing in them with their time and effort. So the moment you put time and effort into anything regard, uh, uh, not in spite, uh, on, not unless, now the word provided. If you put time in anything, provided that you are a person that is cultivating the origins of your imagination, you don't have to worry. Be like, oh, Rehiki, you have to write down these ideas you have. You don't walk around with a tape recorder. It's like, you should write them down. It's like, okay, some of them I do write down. But I, I only write down when I have an epiphany, not when I have a silly idea, because these silly ideas are like my worms. I have plenty of worms in my soil. They're like my worms. It's a compost pile. Enrique, hey, man, we're running out of time yes, here. I know, I know. But I my head has just exploded with <laughs> the most amazing like roller coaster of information I've ever heard from any of my guests. So you you are s- truly a brilliant mind, man, and I want Thank you to you. know that. And your paintings are unbelievably just beautiful in every way possible. And when you were talking about people not wanting to buy them because of the size, like mm. I tend to go straight. Now I'm not saying I look the size first, but I love the bigger the better, in my opinion. Me too. Uh, the more creativity, the if you can cover my whole damn wall, cover the whole wall. You know yes. what I mean? Yes, I'm so, like that. But yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And, and if you want, we can continue this on another episode later down the road. Uh, we can time. release a different one. Many times. Many times. My yeah, pleasure. And, okay. and seriously, everybody out there, like I hope you got just as much value out of that as I did. Uh, you, you were obviously meant to teach also on the side because you you – you, your mind works in such a different way than most people that I engage with. So Thank thanks for sharing all that with us, man. And I'm sorry that we, we were getting no. short. Um, I, I've got to head out of here at eight o'clock though. And, and <laughs> dude, thank you so much for just being the archerpreneur now. And, um, for all the show notes, everybody, it'll be on artsynow.com. And Enrique, I didn't even actually do the introduction to this show because we just started talking and flowing. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm going to just roll this whole entire chat into the episode and we'll just swing it from there, dude. And, and where can our listeners find you or get in contact with you? Okay. I opened uh, recently a new site. It's called Enrique with an H Bertulani.com. That's my, my, my website, my Fazo website where you can find my art. And I'm, I, that's pretty much it. You can find everything you want at Enrique Bertulani.com. Yeah, and it links to your Twitter and your Facebook. And oh, yes. That, and I, I will... Everything is in there. You, my links to my Facebook, my Twitter. I've been using these tools, and I'm, I'm very impressed at how fast one can see the whole world's art yeah. and, and learn. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm going to put that link in the show notes as well. So everybody check it out. Do something crazy. Surrender to your passion. Yes. Practice, practice, practice. Learn mm-hmm. from the people around you because there's something amazing inside of everyone. Mm-hmm. And and break the rules, but first break the rulers, right? Indeed. Yeah. And, and Enrique, once again, man, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate all your time and your dedication, Artsypreneur. You are a very dedicated man, and you should continue this. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Newer Now. For all the show notes, it's artsynow.com. If you want to be a guest on the show, email me at create at artsynow.com. 
or on Twitter at HB underscore Armstrong. The music? Well, that's shaky feeling. Check them out. Ventura, California. Ta-ta! Keep it funky.